0: Imagine you're off to Mars, and imagine going with you is a team of robots or a swarm of robots. And when you get there, you're going to want to send these robots out foraging. But how are you going to program them? Because if you take a very traditional top-down approach to programming, you're going to have to program what every single robot's going to do. And that's going to get very complicated very quickly. So in this episode, we're joined by Melanie Moses. Professor in Computer Science at the University of New Mexico and external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute. Melanie's gonna talk about how you can take the lessons from complexity science and do a bottom-up approach to programming a swarm. In other words, she's gonna talk about how you can program the robots to interact with one another. And if you thought you'd heard the end of scaling our power laws, you're in for a surprise. Because Melanie's also gonna talk about how scaling fits into her work on getting robots to work as a team. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems, systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Melanie Moses, welcome on the show. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be here. So we're going to talk about, and I'm quoting, robust, adaptable and scalable swarms of robots.
1: What are they? Well, in my mind and in my lab, we decided that we wanted to build a swarm of robots inspired by the behavior of foraging ants. Sort of a proof of concept that we could actually engineer robust and adaptive properties we see in biology. We were hoping to show that we would be able to sort of engineer some small kinds of emergent properties from the interactions of robots and their environments. And so, yes, we built a swarm of what we originally called IANTS. These were robots that were controlled by iPods 10, 15 years ago. Uh, So the brains were iPods and they were inspired by ants. And so we had these little IANTS that would drive around and collectively identify resources and pick them up gather them up, take them back to a central nest. And most of the time we had pretty simple environments and we would scatter resources and they would have a little barcode of some sort on them, something called a QR tag. So the robots could identify, oh, this is a resource I want. But they'd have a very limited view of the world, just like an ant can only see so far. A limited ability to communicate with other robots. We only let them talk to each other when they were back at their nest. And our goal was to see if we had these limited not technologically sophisticated robots, could we get them to cooperate and collectively achieve some goal? And so most of the work that we did, first, we spent a couple of years out in the field and we studied ants and how they communicate, how they determine a set of behaviors that would allow them to efficiently and effectively collect resources from their environment and bring them back to their nest. We focused on four behaviors of of ants. We focused on their ability to cover large swaths of territory They have a good way to disperse from the nest. They also have a good way to focus on particular places where they've been before. They have one habit that they like to return to. These are a particular group of desert seed harvesting ants that we have here in uh, New Mexico. And these ants use a behavior called site fidelity, which is when they found a great place, they just go back there. It's about the only thing they did repeatedly is if they were recently in a big pile of seeds, they would return back to that big pile of seeds. Sometimes they would lay a pheromone trail. So they would draw other ants to that pile of good seeds. And we essentially looked at the trade-offs among these behaviors and how they determined when to use which behavior. And we built some, some agent-based models to sort of see which combinations of behaviors were good at collecting food in different sorts of environments.
0: And the objective of doing this, mainly was to say, which is the best? And then how do we program our robots to mimic that behavior, essentially?
1: That's essentially the idea, but we were lazy. We didn't want to program the robots. We didn't want to have to make those choices a priori. We wanted the robots to figure out for themselves, when should I use which combination of behaviors? Just like the ants have figured out for themselves when to use which combinations of behaviors. And so we used evolutionary algorithms to essentially provide a reward when the group of robots was successful at collecting lots of what we'll call food. They would be That behavior would be rewarded by uh, being uh, put back into the population that we draw from. And over time, the population of these swarms would tend toward collections of behaviors that worked well. And so what we evolved was how often, if you find a seed, how often should you return back to that location? And what percentage of the time should you tell your neighbors to follow you to that location? And when should you walk in a straight line to get kind of far away? And when should you do random walk, right? Walking back and forth, searching really thoroughly. And just using seven parameters that guided those behaviors, we would give the robots different kinds of environments. And our main environmental variable that we changed was how clustered is the food. So sometimes you're out in an open plain and the food is scattered at random. Other times you're in a location where perhaps there's just a one single big pile of seeds. And the behavior that you should use is very different in those two cases. If the seeds are distributed at random, the best you can do is walk around randomly, right, and hope you'll stumble into it. But if there's a giant pile of seeds, it's not a very effective behavior, right, to have all the individuals wandering at random. You really need to tell other individuals, hey, I found a seed here, and then they should follow you to that location. So that's what we used evolutionary algorithms to ask, to have the robots figure out which combinations of behaviors should be used in which environments.
0: And this is the actual robots that are doing this work now. So you're basically saying to your real robots, go and work this out for yourself. And by the way, I have a robust strategy. So it's not a strategy that just works as if the food's all in one pile or it's highly distributed. Um, How do they do it? What What did you find?
1: We would do these evolutionary runs in simulation. So we'd run this thousands of times in order to find the right set of parameters to govern the behaviors. Then we would put those parameters into the robots and we would have the robots go out into the real world and use those behaviors. And we would check were these actually more effective behaviors in those environments. The short answer to that question is yes, this actually worked. We could evolve in simulation the right set of behaviors that would work well in the physical robots in a particular environment. Sort of the overarching message from this is that a process that is is—it's just a cartoon of natural selection. A genetic algorithm is a really simplified version of following this Darwinian process of the best combination of the best set of think of as the genome, right? That leads to the right behaviors. That's what you're going to see percolate through the population. And so we were able to show we could actually do that. And if you evolve the robots to forage well, in a world with just big piles of seeds, they would do best in that world. And then if you put those robots in a different environment that they weren't evolved for, they would do quite poorly. So we were able to show lots of different combinations of these experiments that you could in fact evolve for a particular environment. And you could even evolve for a flexible strategy that would work pretty well in any environment.
0: So we had already on the show and she talked about pheromones, bees. Essentially, that really governs short communication, essentially, between bees who are close to each other. And then they evolve strategies to spread the message, obviously. But you found in your work that the pheromones between the robots, essentially their ability to communicate with one another, was important. But there's so much more going on here. And you called the paper Beyond Pheromones. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: We've known for a long time, right? pheromones are fascinating. Pheromones have been understood for 50 years to be ways that ants also communicate with each other, just like bees, just like we're describing that, that wonderful story about how bees communicate. So pheromones are an important part of at least some species of ants' communication. But what we wanted to investigate is all of the other sort of pieces of the ant's behavior that supports that. And in fact, there are many species of ants that that probably don't use pheromones at all or use them quite rarely. We think in the species that we looked at, essentially pheromones are used rarely, but when they're used, they're really important. And so a parameter governing pheromones was just one of our seven parameters. How often should I communicate with other members of the swarm and tell them to go somewhere? It turned out many of our experiments to be far less important than this site fidelity parameter that said, when should I go back to the last place where I was when I found a seed? that turned out to be an equally, or in most cases, more important behavior. Another really important behavior was how thoroughly should I search an environment? If I had been in an environment, if I as an ant or a robot agent had been in a particular place before, and I found a pile of seeds there, I find myself in that same place again, it's really helpful to do a very thorough search there. But if I'm in an unknown location, it's Maladaptive, right? To spend a lot of time searching really thoroughly, I should wander off and and look for something else. If I haven't found something new, as a computer scientist, people have been looking at you know ant colony algorithms and ant colony optimization processes, which often kind of go in and they sort of cherry pick a particular behavior like following pheromones, and you can make really interesting algorithms that solve lots of problems doing that. But in the ants themselves, that That behavior of following pheromones and leading another ant by pheromones is really integrated with a lot of other biology and a lot of other sets of behaviors. And so we really wanted to find an integrated solution that that could sort of pick and choose from which behavior to use in each different environment.
0: And then take that learning and apply it to the real world to program your robots to run around and do their thing.
1: I'll say that we don't think we really understand the behavior until we can engineer it into a system and see that it works the way we expect it to work. And almost never did we observe a behavior in the ants, directly put it in the robots, and it did exactly what we thought, right? We learned that there was more to it than we had originally thought by observing the ants. And so the robots were both a way to test what we learned about the ants, as well as providing a new way to have robots be able to move around in the world and adapt to different conditions they might encounter.
0: So, you've got these robots, which are your agents in the system, and you've got a set of rules and strategies that they can adopt and use. If I was to try and simplify that to probably a ridiculous level, are you saying that in situations where there's clumps of food, that the strategy of following the firm ones and keep going back is a great strategy? But if they're tiny clumps of food and they're randomly spaced around, there's another strategy that's better to teach for your ants to learn to use in that type of environment?
1: That's exactly right. And one way to think about that is you can think about what's the information content I get if I discover a cluster of food versus I find one lone seed all by itself. Well, if I've picked up that seed and I've taken it back home, I actually, I don't have any other information to give my nestmates about where to find food. So sharing information is useless. But if I found a big pile of food, I've taken one seed from that, I now know the location. This is now valuable information that I can communicate to the other ants. And in that case, the sharing information among the swarm about the information in the light in the environment is very valuable. and so only use that fit that strategy under
0: those conditions. One of the ones you mentioned, which sounds fascinating, is that you could actually build them and Evolved them that they could deal with. It was kind of a halfway house. They could sort of deal with clumps of food and food placed around the place. When you looked at the best way they worked out how to do that, what was it about that? Because that seems to be to me to be the really hard bit. How does it evolve to the point where it can make a good decision in that uncertain environment?
1: I think the key for many of those things was what is the thing that the robot had to observe in the world in order to know which strategy to use. And what we found was they just needed to look locally. In fact, we had them spin around in a circle and say, is there anything else here? And they would have a count of the other objects that they saw when they did that little spin. And they could then make the decision, do I return back here? Do I lay a pheromone trail or do I wander off based on the density of things around it? So this simple observation of the density of local food let a robot, presumably also let's an ant, make the right local decision about when do I communicate? this is worth coming back here. And just that little trick <laughs> allows building a really, if, when you look at the simulations, for sort of this beautiful uh, dynamic map of where the food is, you only lay a trail if there's a high density of food there, then you have lots of trails going to big piles of food and very few trails going to little scattered bits of food. And as the food is consumed by the robots or the ants, right, that changes. And so the map then automatically by these decisions of the ants, automatically pheromones going to big piles start to decay. They evaporate over time. We had to fake that in the robots, right? We had to have evaporation happen as a process.
0: Because real pheromones evaporate, yes?
1: Real pheromones evaporate all on their own without any programming. So, uh, but this this sort of natural tendency then of uh, positive feedback when something stays sort of good, right? It's a big, dense pile of food and decay as that isn't reinforced leads... To the ability for the swarm to have a map of their environment.
0: And what's incredible about that is when we talk to or eat with the bees, they draw a map essentially using their pheromones to work out where the queen is all the time in the nest. And you're saying that in this case, they're using a range of techniques, one of them which is pheromones, to essentially draw a food map of their environment to have more efficient foraging of food. That's exactly right.
1: Yep. So that same tool really can be built used to build different kinds of maps. that's kind of the beauty of these biologically inspired ideas is that they're reused over and over in biology. We wanted to use them to make functional swarms of robots that could navigate in the, the sort of uncertainty and chaos of the real world.
0: let's talk about scalability a word that our listeners will have heard quite a little bit about and it'll sound a little bit familiar but what are you talking about scalability when you talk about your robots are you simply talking about scaling up the swarm making a bigger swarm and is it a good idea or a bad idea
1: yes so that was our goal we wanted to find a way to grow to a large swarm that was still able to efficiently gather resources so in the end we built about 100 robots but we never had them functioning in a swarm but in simulation we could have thousands many thousands of robots spreading out over a landscape so sort of a use case might be you want to send robots to mars and you want those robots to go out and collect resources and bring them back to a spot for astronauts. You want them to go very long distances. You might want thousands of them, right, to collect the resources you need. And so that was the problem we were trying to solve. And our first attempt at this in the in the Beyond Pheromones paper, we were able to use this evolutionary process to sort of tweak the efficiency of the swarms. We would have the swarms change their behavior, how far they would walk and how straight they would walk. As a function of their swarm size, but it didn't really get us very far. When we had very large swarms, we would always end up with lots of congestion around the nest, right? Because the nest is a really small area and if you don't have some coordination process, the robots are just bumping into each other all the time. The other problem is the robots have to go a really long distance. That makes them extremely inefficient. I mean, we would run simulations where every time you added a new robot, the whole swarm would get slower. They would get worse and worse, not just per capita, but overall, the whole swarm would perform worse with larger numbers. That's not what you want. In that case, don't bother sending lots of robots to Mars. They're just going to get in each other's way. The second problem is if you have a large swarm that's covering a large area, then you spend lots of time in transport. So each robot is then really inefficient at bringing resources back. If you want to efficiently transport something to a central place, try a fractal branching network. And so we built a fractal fractal branching network for these robots.
0: What you're saying is you're taking the lessons from ants and pheromones and strategies to build your swarm. But as you want to scale that swarm, you started to run into trouble. So what you actually did was you went back to the scaling laws that we spoke to Jeff West about for quite a while. And you basically said, oh, if we take some of those scaling laws, like how metabolic rate, changes with size of animals and the three quarters and the one quarter and all that, and actually apply it to how we scale up our robots and the way we allow them to scale up and the way they allow them to behave and to scale up, that might be the solution. Exactly.
1: And in this case, the biological inspiration is already beautifully mathematically laid out for us, right? It tells us exactly how long, so you imagine sort of a branching tree starting from the collection spot and going out to the tips. And at the tips, right, out there at the leaves, you're picking up resources. And what we did is sort of a bucket brigade, right? We had a robot pick up something, pass it to the next robot. That robot would drive it to the next spot and dump it to the next robot. And that robot would drive it to the next spot. And what the scaling laws gave us was how far should you drive? Turns out how fast should you drive? And how much should you be able to carry? If you think of the aorta, that big branch in the middle, To have a lot of flow through that, what you actually want is a big, in your circulatory system, we modeled that as essentially a big dump truck. And then the next branch is a slightly smaller dump truck, and the next branch is a slightly smaller dump truck. And each of those dump trucks had a particular distance they would go and a speed that they would go. And so we were able first to say that essentially, right, you talked about the three-quarter power scaling that we could get from building a network like this in three dimensions. We're driving in two dimensions. right? We're on a flat surface. So that turns into a two-thirds scaling law that essentially says each robot would be less efficient by this power of one-third of the size of the swarm. And so we could show that we could follow the math from biology and make that work. But then we realized we weren't as constrained as biology, particularly because we were in a two-dimensional system. You could essentially sort of take advantage of that 3D that you, right? And you could stack stuff up, right? You could build in theory, a really large, maybe not an infinitely large, but a really large dump truck. And as long as you matched the rate of collection with the rate of deposit at each point in the system, we could actually show that you could have a perfectly indefinitely scalable swarm, as one of my colleagues, uh, Dave Ackley, says. So as long as you designed the network correctly, you could be just as efficient with 10 robots as 10,000 robots, as long as you had this coordinated fractal branching network in the middle between the collection and the coordinated drop-off. And so we were able to actually show that we could do this, right? We could sort of turn the math on its head and say, you know, if we follow the math of the three-quarter scaling power math in 2D, but then we said we can overcome it by essentially carrying more things per dump truck and moving them a little bit faster, then we could be just as efficient at large and small scales. So the biology gave us both something to imitate, but then the math to sort of overcome the limitations of that system itself.
0: So what you're saying is, if we just stay with the 2D example, because you're in two dimensions, you've got a two-third power law, and you can just keep increasing the size of this worm. And before you started to impose this network structure on it, or a fractal network structure on it, you really dropped off efficiency very quickly because these robots are bumping into each other and getting in each other's ways. But by getting them to organize themselves, which along the lines of fractal branching, you are able to not have these major losses of efficiency.
1: Yeah. So, we, in some sense, you might say we add two dimensions. So, so right, as Jeff describes it, uh, that's right. The, the fractal branching provides this extra dimension. So, that fourth dimension is there, but that fourth dimension is still embedded in the 3D system. The advantage you have with a 2D system is you do actually have another physical real third dimension. So we were able to to offload to to, to make that third dimension do more work for us, <laughs> essentially by stacking all of the resources. I kind of imagined it as like a circus clown on a unicycle carrying a bunch of plates on its <laughs> on its head. You know, by by stacking those those additional plates in these large dump trucks, you could actually overcome that scaling limitation that things have to sort of slow down and, and do extra transport at larger sizes. And so there's an extra physical dimension in a 2D system that you don't have that extra dimension in a 3D system. In fact, I used to think of this when you explain why the the circulatory scaling is so difficult to overcome. If you had an elephant that did everything as fast as a mouse, it would need to carry around a gigantic circulatory system on its back that would, in fact, be bigger than the elephant. And so that doesn't work in 3D. But in 2D, you can add on extra layers essentially in the third dimension to take care of the extra work and overhead of transport, essentially.
0: And what you're doing here is, you know, if we go back, you've got a interacting agents with a bunch of strategies that they can use based on the ends. And what you're doing is you're saying, yeah, OK, we're looking for emergent behavior here, but we're actually going to help this along a little bit. We're going to say, hey, we understand these scaling laws and we want you robots to understand them as well. And if you organize yourself around these scaling laws, you'll be less inefficient in the space you're operating in. Is that a fair summary?
1: Absolutely fair. So the basic searching behaviors, more kind of this emergent property, that we're able to copy the way that ants do that. I suppose if we had a lot of time, we might hope that we could evolve this fractal hierarchical transport network. We didn't think we had that much time. So we just told them that answer, right? We said, evolution has figured this out. Here's Here's the answer. (laughs) Here's an advantage, use this. And so at that point, the transport part of the swarm, it's still autonomous. The robots aren't, there's no central controller, right? The robots get to a particular place. They have a particular behavior that they use. But it's not uh, that sort of, you know, truly adaptive behavior that we, that we had with our original swarm. Um, we had to impose this hierarchy of movement. In simulation, we imagined and we actually built dump trucks. Uh, we only built one dump truck, I should be honest, right? <laughs> to, to prove <laughs> the concept that we could have uh, a robot pick up resources, put it in a dump truck, and it would drive it to the next location and and so on from there.
0: This is complexity science, isn't it, at its core, though? Because what we're basically saying is okay, we could wait a very long time for the robots to evolve the scaling laws. But what you're saying is we don't need to because we've someone else has done the work in a totally different system, the circularity system, because they've done it there. That principle is just as applicable in our little complex system of, of interacting robots as it is in the human body. And because we understand how it works, we can try it here. And I think the really beautiful thing is when you try it, it did give you the results that you needed.
1: Right. It actually worked. It actually, you know, as I was saying before, you know, you believe you have a different level of faith in your system when you've copied a set of rules and you've seen the behavior you were looking for. So we were able to show that. You know, there's a lot of controversy in these scaling laws. We were able to show they worked exactly the way the math said they should work because we ran simulations and we had physical robots that actually behaved exactly as the equations would predict. You know, so you had that sort of level of satisfaction. Okay, now we've, we've built the system. We really understand how it works. This question of, you know, when do you evolve something de novo and when do you just take something that has evolved and you use it? I like to go back and forth there, right? I mean, it's it's a really fascinating question. Perhaps there's some other solution that could be evolved that's more efficient, more scalable. I don't know. We didn't answer that question. We were really happy with the, <laughs> with the, with the system nature already gave us. And the same with the ant behaviors, right? The basic behaviors that we had the ant the, the robots use, the ants had evolved those and we just copied them. And we only use the evolutionary process to say, how do we put these pieces together? And so I think there's a lot to leverage with that. When you you want to see how to combine different interesting biological pieces into something new, an evolutionary process is really useful. But when you've already got a tool, why not take it and then build from there? We don't have to start with the primordial soup.
0: Melanie Moses, thank you very much for being on the show.
1: Thanks, Sean. This was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.